Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I've returned to the New Books Network, the Archaeology Channel. I'm here today with Seth Bernard. We're going to be discussing his book, Building Mid-Republican Rome, Labor, Architecture, and the Urban Economy, published by Oxford University Press. Welcome, Professor Bernard. Thank you, Ryan. Glad to be here. So before we dive into the questions, uh, can you discuss a little bit your selection of the cover for the for the uh, hardcover version of the book? Sure. Uh, the cover shows an image um, from a marble relief from a building called the Basilica Aemilia on the Roman Forum. So it's from Rome, uh, but it's a little later than the topic of the book. It's a late Republican image. I didn't have a good image like this from the period, but what it shows uh, are two men building a wall of large blocks. And the theme of the book is really to try and connect architecture and architectural production to history, to human narratives. So I thought it was a very good image uh, to bring those two things together. What prompted you to study mid-Republican Rome? And what do you mean by urban economy in this populated place and period? And what is your source base thereof? Well, uh, this is, I thought, a very much overlooked but important period. Uh, This is an early period. Uh, Our historical sources, our literary sources are very difficult. Uh, But to my mind, it's a period when very much of what we recognize is distinct about the later Republican and imperial city of Rome, this great metropolis, this metropolis of uh, a million people, we often say, of dense urban fabric came together. Now, cities like ancient Rome are not only distinct uh, spaces in terms of architecture and infrastructure, they're distinct in terms of social and economic structures. So uh, one thing economists have really stressed is that cities show a particular division of labor. That is, uh, to have a dense population not involved in food production, uh, you have to have all sorts of economic structures extending well into the hinterland. And I was trying to look at this. I was trying to look at how Rome formed not only as a built city, uh, but also in terms of its relationship to the world around it, uh, in terms of its separation and distinction as an economic space as well. Uh, We lack close documentary material for economic studies in antiquity. Uh, But what we do have are the signs of what the people who lived in Rome did, what they worked on. And particularly, uh, we have remains of their their building, of, of the sort of greatest urban productive activity they took place in. So I use the architecture and I use the buildings uh, as a way of understanding um, the human and the social and the economic history uh, of the city at this fundamental early moment. Can you elaborate on the varieties of tufts quarried from the complex geology surrounding Rome and central Italy, in addition to territorial expansion ingredients for bricks, tiles, timber, iron, and bronze? What evidence do you offer for mixed private and public organizational modes of construction and property ownership in mid-Republican Rome? 
Sure. Uh, you know, I think Roman historians often stress the sociopolitical complexity of the early city. This is a city, a site that sat in a sort of frontier area between Etruria to the north, uh, Greek Campania to the south. It's worth stressing, too, that Rome's situation is geologically, it's physically complex. The city sits as a juncture uh, of the accumulation of stone from two major volcanic areas. You have the Alban Mount to the south and the Monte Sabatini Mountains near Lake Bracciano to the north. Both of these erupted. Uh, they deposited, we're talking about a million years ago, these layers of volcanic stone, what we call tufts or tufo in Italian. Uh, but Rome is really at the juncture of these two areas. And then a whole network of rivers, not only the Tiber, but its tributaries cut into that tufo and make it available to quarrymen. So this landscape is compact, um, but highly variegated. And it makes it very interesting. So uh, one thing I was looking at is how the supply chains are drawing from these very minute different areas, looking at these different types of tuff, uh, looking uh, further abroad for metal, uh, looking for timber to this or that place, uh, and how Rome's um, progressive expansion, its imperialism in this period, helped support its search for different types of building materials. So how the city's growth physically uh, really depended upon its movement to all these different places in this complex region. Um, of course, property ownership, that is who controls the quarries, the forests, the mines, and so forth, this is really consequential to this story. And if we want to argue that all of this is a matter of imperial expansion, then we need to think that the state, the Roman state, conquered Italy and then was responsible for providing that materials. That's simply not the case. Ancient sources tell us about stone coming from private land, timber coming from private land, private contractors. Uh, and so we have a much more complex uh, and I think interesting supply chain rising up in the wake of Rome's uh, very early stages of, of expansion in central Italy. So you're a professor of class, classics at the Univers University of Toronto. Please explain the difficulties of reconciling textual and archaeological evidence for the 390 BCE, for example, in Kendium, and subsequent reconstruction efforts, even for a minimalist interpretation of the Incendium's effects on the city of Rome and the Roman economy. Yeah, so uh, this is sort of the core of what I do, which is thinking through uh, how our texts, many of which are written hundreds of years after the period I'm concerned with, uh, can still be useful. Uh, and how we might expand on them, how we might fill the gaps in our understanding using other forms of information, coins, uh, architecture, archaeology, uh, the sort of total history that can arise from the integration of all these types of sources. Um, one wonderful event for doing this is, as you know, the sack of Rome by Gauls around 390 BC. This was a fundamental moment in early Roman history. Uh, Gauls uh, came down over the Alps, through the spine of Italy, sacked the city of the Romans. The last time an army invades the city of Rome for hundreds of years, and Roman writers, hundreds of years after this, after this. Uh, would still sort of see this as a touchstone for the development of their city. In particular, uh, our, our sources talk about how the city was leveled. It was totally destroyed. This incendium or this holocaustic fire burned the city down and in that moment allowed for a new city to be built, a new Rome to be built uh, in its place. Now, that's what they tell us. If we look at the archaeology, we have a great deal of trouble finding any real evidence for that fire. We have, you know, we can't find the destruction deposits. Uh, we find them sporadically. And what they're describing doesn't quite fit. So we have to work to reconcile these two things together. Uh, the way I did it is I saw this event as being 
very serious, psychologically serious uh, in the minds of the Romans, elaborated in later sources, um, and uh, uh, and perhaps the driving reason to do things like build a massive wall around the city of Rome, do things like this, uh, but not necessarily uh, this punctuated moment for the rise of this new city like we see in the sources. Approximately six years before the Incendium, Roman annexation of Etruscan Vey had offered gains to Roman production through the increase of two productive factors, land and labor. But did Rome add sufficient new labor to cultivate its new territory or sufficient land for expanding population? What is the significance of such commissionability or incommensurate assessments for your study? One of the major questions of Roman history are the effects of the first stages of Roman conquest. And this is what we're talking about here, the effects of the opening of Roman imperialism. We think of Rome as this hegemonic empire holding sway over basically the entire Mediterranean world. That process begins way back in the early 4th century with Rome's conquest of the Etruscan capital of A, about 10 miles north of the city, up the Tiber River. So this is the first moment uh, of Roman uh, imperial expansion. It captures the city. It takes over this large territory. But nonetheless, the Roman economy does not seem to suddenly become active and vibrant uh, as we know the later imperial economy was. And I wanted to try to explain that. Uh, I wanted to say, look, if we accept the fact that Rome expanded in this moment, then why did the absorption of a large new territory not suddenly restructure the Roman economy? The source's answer to this is that the Gauls sacked and destroyed the city and it was very expensive to rebuild. But as I've just said, that's very hard to believe. There's very little archaeological evidence. So I looked further than that. And one answer I came up with was by focusing on what economists would call the factors of production that were added to the Roman economy. While Rome gained land in this period, it also took over workers, in this case Etruscans, who already lived on that land. And it changed their status from free to slave. In the later Roman imperial economy, Rome imported slaves from the periphery of their empire onto acquired territory. This is the sort of thing that happens, for example, also in the Americas with the African slave trade. But this doesn't happen in this initial moment. And I think that this makes Rome's early conquest more fragile, uh, at least distresses on the labor supply from an economic perspective. Please elucidate how you estimated the height and width of the Roman circuit walls. In addition, how did you assess their 4th century BCE construction stages and cost breakdowns for approximating, uh, uh, again, uh, the labor costs in person days? So there's a short answer to this, which is fieldwork. Uh, I spent a couple of <laughs> years. I spent a couple of years crawling all over the remains of Rome's early walls. Um, I'm well aware that there's a great section of them in the McDonald's under Termini Station. There, are in fact, two McDonald's in Rome's main uh, train station: one upstairs, one downstairs. But only the downstairs one has a big section of the wall. Um, but I looked at the firsthand evidence. Uh, I looked for physical signs of how Romans built this massive monument. Uh, this is, you know, uh, an 11-kilometer wall. Uh, I estimate it took several you know, million man days. Of of labor in order to build. Um, and I formed a model, I reconstructed the mummy, I formed a, a monument, and I formed a model of how long it would take to build um, by looking to comparative, either early modern studies uh, of labor costs for building this sort of cut stone ashlar architecture, uh, or some recently published timed experiments, uh, timing masons doing these things. And I applied these uh, figures to the volumetric uh, reconstruction of the wall, and the result uh, tells us how many, uh, you know, how many days of work, literally, uh, it might have cost to build this massive monument. In the context of varieties of labor and the transition from archaic to republican Rome, why and how do you conclude that the walls' costs exacerbated extant problems of economic inequality? And for the walls, how did you approximate a five-year building schedule? 
One of the fundamental things to recognize here is that Rome's economy, again, the imperial economy that we know, monetized, reliant on contracts, slave and free, that was something that had to develop. And in the early period, we have uh, an economy that is based much more on uh, social relationships, uh, distrainment of labor, labor taxes, things like that. So I wanted to find the fulcrum when, uh, when that earlier archaic economy transforms into a different monetary economy. And of course, uh, if you build a large wall with a labor market, then you need a m- lot of money to pay for it. If you build a large wall with a labor tax uh, and it's unremunerated and you're making your farmers build that wall, well, that's a backbreaking thing to do. That has the potential uh, to send your farmers into debt, to send the peasants into debt, uh, to stop them from being agriculturally productive. And so uh, it was necessary to sort of think through how the Roman state, in fact, was organizing the labor behind the wall, not only the general cost, uh, but how it was organizing uh, the labor behind it. In terms of the five-year building schedule, the truth is we don't know. We just don't know how long it took to build the walls. We have these little chance mentions in our sources, in particular the historian Livy. Uh, But what I did is I modeled a couple scenarios. So the wall could uh, be built in a short time, a medium time, and a long time. Uh, And I looked within those parameters what it would do to Roman households, what it would do to the uh, economic requirements for agriculture uh, if they were compelled through a labor tax uh, to build this massive monument. What circumstances precipitated the passage of a 319 BCE Ovidian law? And how did the landmark legislation, as well as censor uh, Appius uh, Claudius Caicus, shape the construction of the Via Appia and the aqueduct? So the Ovidian law must have had an enormous impact on the political, social, and economic structures of the Roman world. It must have. Uh, But I think it's a pretty typical thing for the sort of source material that we have. Here is a measure that gave the censors Uh, before this is a fairly minor government officer, it gave the censors uh, this new ability every five years to decide who was and who was not in the Senate. Uh, And from this moment onward, the censors are responsible for drawing the boundaries really of the aristocracy, really of membership in the Roman aristocracy. They're legally defining uh, this new ruling elite. Um, So the law gives the censors massive importance. Uh, His office becomes regular as a result. And it's from this moment onward that we can see him taking a role in uh, transforming and overseeing the transformation of the city. And for all this importance to this law, this Ovinian law, we know almost nothing about its passage. All we know is we have a brief sentence in an obscure imperial antiquarian writer, and it, it really in a dictionary, uh, an author named Festus. Uh, it's not a source I normally teach. Um, and <laughs> we don't even know who Ovinius was. So we don't know the context of its passage. We don't know the oh, really? behind it. We, we know almost nothing here. Um, but it must have been fundamentally important. Around the same time that it's passed, we have one of the more brilliant political careers uh, of a censor in Roman history. And this is Appius Claudius Caicus. He holds the censorship in 312. Uh, he attempts to remake the Senate, so he must have held it after the law was passed. He attempts to introduce new ex-slaves, sons of ex-slaves into the Senate, and he builds these massive monuments, Rome's first aqueduct, the Aqua Appia, and its first major highway, the Via Appia. So he really embodies a great deal of what the Ovinian law's effects must have been, even if I don't think he was personally responsible for passing the law. Uh, He was very famous for doing these things, so his career is comparatively well-known. It's remembered by our sources, and he provides us for that reason with a really excellent window uh, onto broader political changes uh, in Roman society at that date and time in the late 4th century. 
Now, you argue that various factions within the Roman elite depended on different understandings of the definition of wealth and its ability to support political power. While not directly tied to the expansion and maintenance of urban fabric, this development led to structural changes in the organization of production, which included the city's building industry, according to your book. For our listeners, please discuss evidence for this development in the context of forms and interpretations of metallic wealth, particularly coinage, which you've already alluded to, as an embodiment of the market-based exchanges that gave authority to a new group of Roman elites. Yeah, so, I mean, Ryan, if you came to me and you said, I, I need one, tell me the one biggest economic change in the, in the mid-Republic. You know, what, what is it that really, you know, you zoom in on? Uh, as a new innovation in this period for the Roman economy, I would have to say it's coinage. It's in this period uh, that Romans first used coin money. Uh, and I wanted to explain that because it's a bit weird. We know that Greeks had been using coins uh, in their economy for hundreds of years before Romans did. So we've always had a little bit of trouble understanding why at this particular moment Romans use coins. There's also the issue that when Romans first start minting coins, uh, the issues are very small. They're nowhere near the size of Greek contemporary issues. And they're sometimes years or decades apart. So they're not really using the, you know, it's not this sort of overnight monetization. I tried to explain this by contextualizing it in the surrounding historical events and really in, in the surrounding changes to Roman society. I looked at how Romans used metal before coinage. They did so uh, as an economic good, certainly, but also as a prestige good, as a form of symbolically affirming really membership in the aristocracy, right? You use gold, silver objects for that reason. Coinage, by contrast, operates outside those sort of social networks. It allows for anonymous, generally market-based trade, and it allows for the separation, or at least the greater separation of wealth from prevailing social hierarchies. These are the sort of things that I think anthropologists and archaeologists will be familiar with from work uh, by Marcel Mauss, uh, Perry and Bloch, was instrumental to my own work. Uh, then in the fourth and third centuries, when coinage start to appear, again, in limited numbers, we find appearing alongside these new classes of Roman society. Appius Claudius, for example, I just noted that he, he supports this group of sons of ex-slaves. These would have been people without social clout, not from the aristocracy, uh, but with wealth. And so there's a question of where they're getting this wealth, what mechanisms they're using to achieve it, right? Uh, our sources tell us that this is an urban class. It's a commercial class. Uh, it's a class that would have used, we think, coinage, right? So it's this idea of conceiving of wealth and its relationship to social status, conceiving of uh, the boundaries of the aristocracy uh, as something that can be derived from more anonymous, more market-based wealth of the sort uh, that coins are able to provide or able to facilitate. How and why did the ability to, to express value in monetary terms and lump sum arrangements for state contracts reveal elite competition for public monument construction? So we start in really in the third century BC alongside coinage to see for the first time direct evidence of the building process at Rome and in particular for how the state is using uh, contracts, the, the contractual process to arrange for construction. Uh, curiously enough, that evidence tends to operate at a fairly high level. What I mean by that is we never hear an inscription saying, I'm paying so-and-so for a door handle, I'm paying so-and-so for a window, three obols for this. Uh, that's something we have from the Greek world at the same time, but we don't have it from Rome. And instead, normally what our evidence says is this, the consul Marcus so-and-so vowed a temple. The edel Gaius so-and-so to approve the contract for the temple. And that's it. Sometimes we have costs, but again, they're not, you know, an obel here, a drachma here. They're like 100,000 sesterces for an aqueduct. So everything's operating at this very high level. So we have evidence, 
but it relates to people who were not themselves carpenters, uh, you know, masons and builders, but rather people who were involved at the political level uh, in the construction process. And I argue that the shape of this evidence results from the desire of aristocrats and Roman elites to attach their names to the project. So consuls want to get credit for adding to Rome's monumental landscape. This helps them politically. They do so by putting their names, literally inscribing in some cases, their names on temples and other buildings. They get around the hubris of this move by doing so under the guise of affirming the contractual relationship that resulted in the construction of a temple, right? So it's a, it's a political process, but they don't care about so-and-so, the builder or his workers or these sorts of things. They care about themselves and the massive amounts of money that they could shape and direct towards a project. And so that agenda, I think, has really shaped the nature of this early evidence. Can you discuss your evidence and source categories for the urban expansion of mid-Republican Rome, as well as the population increase generated by the transfer of captive slaves and potential free laborers, such as, you know, like architects, artisans, and painters? Sure. So uh, the demography, I should start by saying the demography, the demographic history of Rome in any period is very complex and difficult. In my period, it's really elusive. We have these census reports, that is, we have numbers that seem to tell us, well, we don't really know, but we think maybe the adult male population or all the uh, population, whether or not it's an urban population or not, we really don't know. They're very hard to use. What we can tell in broad strokes is that the city is expanding rapidly in this period. We have two aqueducts built in quick succession. I've already mentioned the the Aqua Appia in 312. We have the Annio Vetus in 272 BC. Uh, So, you know, the city's getting more dense. It needs water. Uh, We can also look at the archaeology. We start having uh, sites appearing on hills and areas of Rome that we had not had uh, signs of inhabitation uh, previously, at least not for a little while. So Rome is expanding. The population is expanding. Uh, It's getting bigger, uh, even if we can't exactly put numbers on that. We can tell that's the case. So the next question to ask is, who are these people? Ancient cities in general, Rome included, are population sinks. Uh, they have a negative natural growth rate. They're places where people come, uh, they, you know, sanitation and stuff. Uh, people come and uh, mortality rates are above fertility rates. And so cities tend to grow uh, because people move there. Immigration is the most important thing for the expansion of cities in the pre-modern world. Um, and so if we think about why people in this moment are moving to Rome, uh, we have to think that they're moving uh, either pushed or pulled there uh, to work on various aspects of the city, right? If we look at the uh, record of temples and other monuments built in this period, we have to think there's enormous demand for work. Uh, and so workers are streaming into the city. They're coming as slaves, they're pushed there, uh, or they're pulled there by opportunity. I, I compared, for example, uh, the situation in some of the um, Arabian Peninsula countries recently, which are building just enormously and have enormous populations of immigrants. And I think a similar thing, uh, in some sense, on a smaller scale is happening in Rome in this period. Uh, in terms of who these people were and what the evidence for who these people were uh, is, there is a little bit of textual evidence. There are a couple inscriptions which name some of these people. Indeed, these inscriptions tend to suggest that these people are not local to Rome, so they confirm that scenario. Uh, and there's also some parallel textual evidence. One of my favorite things to point out in this context is that this is the same period when Latin literature is born. Uh, these are the Aeneas, Nivius, uh, these great um, authors, Livius Andronicus, uh, who represent the beginnings of writing in Latin. Most of those authors are born outside of Rome. Most of those poets and playwrights are foreign, uh, and they come to Rome to work. They come to Rome to write. And I think that trend in literature uh, is paralleled with masons and sculptors uh, and various other trades uh, at the same time. 
How did the production of bronze coinage, urban topographies of retail and production, and workers' inscriptions, as well as engraved signatures, all demonstrate increasing demand for wage labor currency? We have no direct evidence for wages in this period. Uh, we really have no direct evidence for wages paid at Rome in any period, although we certainly assume that wage labor played a great role uh, in the later Roman city. This is an obstacle, and it's an obstacle that historians need to come, need to, come to terms with and find a way uh, to get around. I did so by examining the potential for a labor market, so not uh, the exact features uh, or wages that would indicate uh, the performance of a labor market, but the uh, the idea that it may have existed. I did so uh, by looking at the potential for workers to move to the city, something I've discussed already, uh, and then also the potential for those workers to be paid. And you could see all sorts of sort of secondary evidence which hints at this. Um, bronze coinage starts in the third century at Rome, and it's a remarkable coinage. It contains uh, you know up to six, seven, eight different denominations under. Uh, what's called the ass, and the ass is you know maybe a day's a day's worth of grain. So we're talking really we're talking small change for the first time in this period. And it's hard to imagine that this sort of coinage isn't flowing in uh, to daily transactions and marketplaces uh, to help sort of grease the wheels of this rising urban economy. At the same time, those marketplaces are proliferating. So we're seeing Rome's first vegetable market, uh, Rome's uh, first um, sort of uh, growth of the forum. Uh, we see the first what's called the Macellum, which may have been this sort of uh, luxury shopping mall of sorts rising up all in this period. So as Romans are getting more cash, they're finding places to, to uh, spend that cash. Uh, and, uh, and as that happens, they're having more opportunity to work for a wage. Whether or not they're doing it, they're having more opportunity to do it. What evidence substantiates notions on that note that mid-Republican Masons grew aware of the limitations and different applications for varieties of uh, Tufo Jalo, as well as the use of cranes and a, even a Lewis in building Rome. And how did Mason mobility across Italy, as well as experience, contribute to this knowledge production? So I wanted to get at who was moving to Rome, and I did so from a sort of theoretical perspective in one chapter, uh, but I also wanted to do so on a more empirical uh, basis. And I did, I did that by looking directly at the archaeological material evidence. What becomes clear is that over the course of the period I'm describing, uh, Roman building technologies change, and those changes to Roman building technology are reflective of the entrance of new knowledge, but also new builders, new masons to the city of Rome. One major change that appears, if you were to characterize all this change, it's a greater awareness of the physical properties of various building stones. So Romans are increasingly combining different types of stone into monuments. They're doing so strategically, so eventually, so they're using uh, one crane uh, with these lifting tongs for one, one type of stone. They're using a Lewis, a different type of lifting device for another type of stone. And they're also doing so uh, to protect particular materials from um, hydraulic damage from the elements. Uh, so they're developing this whole sort of strategic blending of different building stones. Some stones are softer, some are harder, some have better tensile strength, some are lighter, uh, etc. These sorts of things seem obvious to us, right? It seems obvious to us you don't want to use a bad stone on the outside of a building that it might crack and fall apart. But it's not, in fact, something that we see in our earliest stone architecture at Rome. They're using a pretty shoddy type of stone, this tufo giallo, also a stone uh, often referred to as capolaccio or tufo del palatino. Um, so uh, at some point, they developed this knowledge. And I looked at uh, when, uh, when and how they did. The physical evidence, that is what remains of Roman stone masonry around the city, suggests little effort to protect friable stone in the 4th century, and then more effort to do so progressively in the 3rd and the 2nd. 
right when I say that Rome is starting to swell uh, with a new population. And if you pinpoint this change to that moment, and you think that these stones that they're using and the knowledge about these stones are coming from outside the city, from Latium, from central Italy, then you have to think that this is a moment when Masons themselves are attracted to Rome. Masons are skilled, knowledgeable about their respective territorial resources, who bring that knowledge to Rome, who help Romans themselves and people working in the city of Rome expand their own knowledge, experiment with different types of stone. And we can see this in the physical evidence, the progressive blending, uh, proliferation of of building, uh, lifting techniques, the blending of different stones to protect uh, softer stones, uh, various things like that. So the rise of this sort of strategic masonry ultimately speaks, I think, to a human process and to the arrival in the city of new workers and new technical knowledge. For our listeners, please attempt to answer your own concluding question. And this is the question. To what degree was observable change reflective of what might be called conscious economic policy directed by the Republican state? I hate that you drilled me on this because I, I, tried, <laughs> I tried to hide this question at the end of the book where no one would notice, but it shows me you read the whole thing. It's such a hard question to answer. It is crucial, however. Uh, look, there are enormous changes to Rome's economy in my period. We have coins. We've talked about contracts, uh, and numerous institutional changes. We haven't talked about uh, the rise of slave labor in this period. Uh, the economy, the Roman economy seems like really it seems like a wreck in the early fourth century. A century later, Appius Claudius Caicus, things like that, many of these innovations in place, Rome is just chugging along, it's building, it's starting to seem like the world power that it'll eventually grow into. So what changes, and and more importantly, why? Did Roman elites sit back and say, we're having trouble raising labor with archaic structures, why not invent coins, why not invent contracts? Or did these things happen sort of uh, naturally, organically? It's much easier for us as historians to describe change than to find their causes. But these latter questions are important. If we think that Rome had a deliberate economic policy in this period, it raises a host of other implications. We can think of the mature Roman economy experienced, we, sorry, excuse me. We think that the mature Roman economy experienced levels of economic growth that are really unheard of for the preceding period and in many ways unparalleled into the Industrial Revolution. If we want to explain that, we have to think through whether or not the Roman state had some sort of deliberate effort, concentrated effort in growing the economy, right? Uh, This doesn't seem to us to be how Romans acted, but it's how modern states act, right? We we talk about how the stock market is going. We talk about how, you know, GDP is going up. Romans don't have these terms, but indeed their economy seems to expand. So my suspicion is that changes are happening uh, but that changes are happening from a much more subtle and less directed reason. I, we talked about the Lex Ovinia, the Ovinian law, and I really think that's emblematic. Here is a measure that seems designed to promote senatorial elite. It seems designed uh, to promote certain elements of Roman society. Its effects must have been enormous uh, in terms of the censor's oversight of urban production, uh, in terms of uh, the sort of uh, regularization of production in the city of Rome. But those impacts are secondary. It's not to say they're unknown, but they're secondary to why the law passes. And I don't think it would surprise me, although it's very hard to recover it, uh, if that sort of indirect relationship were also more widely the case in my period, but also in later periods uh, of, of the Roman Empire. So I have a final question. Yeah. What can we expect? What, what can we expect from you uh, next? Are you working on another project? Are you taking a vacation? What's next for you? I need a vacation. I I am. Uh, so one of the big questions this book raised uh, is what happens with Italy. So we've talked about how uh, in my model people are sort of flocking to Rome or or they're compelled to come to Rome as slaves. The city's expanding, uh, and so one thing I'm starting to look at uh, in a large scale project is. Uh, 
the Italian peninsula in this period, what is it doing? And does, is this a zero-sum game? Does the rise of Rome entail uh, the contraction of various uh, earlier Italian societies, um, demographically, economically? Or, or is there something more fundamental here? Climate scientists now would, uh, would note that this period in particular is the beginning of what they call the Roman warm period, that we have a more stable and warmer climate starting around 200 BC, thereabouts, that lasts until the end of the Roman Empire. This would, of course, have impacted uh, production. Um, it would have impacted a whole host of Roman economic functions, also Italian economic functions. So is Rome simply siphoning off this exogenous effect, or, or are they somehow uh, pushing down Italy to rise up themselves? So I'm getting at that question. Uh, I'm at the beginning of a large project at that. Um, and then my field work now is also in Italy. I've, I've stopped flying to Rome. I'm, I'm working in Tuscany now at a site called Papalonia, uh, a mining site to try and figure out uh, production, uh, again, outside of Rome in this scenario. Well, we hope that you uh, remember the New Books Network for your uh, future projects. Um, I thank you for being on the show today, uh, Professor Bernard. Uh, again, I really, really thank you. Well, Ryan, thank you so much. It's an honor to be able to talk about my book. And uh, and uh, thank you guys for, for helping me promote it. And thanks for your interest. So the uh, book is Building Mid-Republican Rome, Labor Architecture and the Urban Economy by uh, Professor Seth Bernard uh, out last year from Oxford University Press. On behalf of the New Books Network and Professor Bernard, the Archaeology Channel, uh, this is Ryan Tripp. Please tune in next time. <laughs>